Welcome to episode 184 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Can I just say, can we plug it for the second week in a row? I'm so glad the Society of Reformed Podcasters is back. Yeah, yeah, it's it's good stuff. You know, we uh, we made the unfortunate decision to shut it down, and it was the right thing at the right time. But you know, I've noticed uh, there's actually a few more shows that I'm scoping out for the Society of Reform Podcasters. There's like this resurgence of podcasting because of coronavirus. So common grace right there. I mean, there, there's all Amen. sorts of new stuff. It's funny when it when coronavirus lockdown first started, I saw this funny meme that was like, um, only you can prevent white dudes from creating podcasts. And it was like, <laughs> basically, it was predicting that as everybody gets locked in their houses, there's going to be like this flurry of new like podcasts that come out. So, you know, it's true, though, like people are stuck in their homes. They're reading more. They have more time on their hands that they're trying to fill with stuff. And there are a couple new shows that have come out and a couple other older shows that have sort of rebooted a little bit. So I'm super excited. You know, we've got a great lineup already. Um, I'm, I'm hearing through the grapevine uh, from me to you that Fast God Stuff is working on some new content, which That's is true. awesome. Uh, Distilling Theology's got some good stuff going on. The Bobcast, which is like the greatest name for any podcast ever. So good. Um, and uh, Reform Pilgrims is going strong. So we're super excited. There's a couple more shows that we're hoping uh, to bring online in the next couple weeks. So stay tuned for those announcements. Uh, but yeah, super excited about the SORP coming back. This is both a genuine question and a straight setup. How would one subscribe to all of those podcasts all at once if theoretically you wanted to get them all? Mega feed. <laughs> so so it's it's hard to find right now. I have to fix the website, but there is a feed if you go to iTunes or anyone else that has an indexed podcast directory and look up Society of Reformed Podcasters. Uh, you'll find a mega feed, which contains all of the content from all of the member shows, starting all the way back with episode one of the Reformed Brotherhood. So please do not wow. listen to that. Although I, <laughs> I do hear once in a while that someone, uh, we got a, a wonderful email from a dear brother the other day uh, who goes through the entire back catalog, um, had some really nice things to say about us that I'm sure we don't deserve. But uh, it's all available if you want to hear us grow into the uh, amateur podcasters that we are now from whatever we started out <laughs> as. Uh, but you right. can get all the content, you know, right down. There's only four episodes, I think, now, including a, a Bob bite of the uh, Bobcast. And there's now 183, 184 now episodes of our show. Uh, and it's only going to keep growing again. So check it out. Society of Reform Podcasters on any podcatcher or reformpodcasts.com. Hold up. Did you just say Bob Bite? Bob Bite. Yeah, <laughs> they do. So the Bobcast <laughs> is so great. They're like shorter episodes. Uh, short, short's relative, obviously, but they, they tend to be like 15, 20, maybe 30 minutes long. And they're working through wonderful works of God, like 95% right. of the rest of you know, 35 year old white guys, uh, in the reform world are doing right now. Uh, but it's timely, but they also are doing these little like snippet shows. Like the first Bob bite was basically like a short biographical, uh, snippet about Herman Bovink in his life. So right. check it out. That that's probably, uh, probably one of the shows that I'm most excited, the newest shows I'm most excited about. There's a couple other new shows that have a lot of potential that I'm scoping out as well. And this was all free of charge. We're not even yeah. into affirmations yet. This oh, was just, you're getting more than you paid for, which was theoretically for most people, zero. That's true. So it, look at the value that we're adding. We're trying to bring a little bit of joy and theology into your life. So let's get then get into some affirmations and denials. You want to kick us off with the affirmation? Sure. So some of our listeners may remember that last year uh, I attended the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. Yes. And our surprise guest, Jonathan Master, uh, referenced this and that the uh, the conference was canceled this year due to coronavirus, like most conferences uh, have been. But they still held the conference in digital form. So all of the conferences were live stream, uh, which means you probably can still get them. Um, so I guess my affirmation is one thing is the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. Just phenomenal. Like if you have a chance to listen to it, you can buy 
the recordings from previous years. Um, I'm assuming that these ones will be available free of charge since they were live streamed, but otherwise they'll be available for purchase. Just a phenomenal conference. The way that they put it together, it's really good. So I'm affirming the Philadelphia conference, but in general, more like broadly, I'm affirming the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. You know, they, they really are devoted to putting out really good reformed resources, primarily reformed. Um, there are some sometimes that you would, would see uh, other other figures that aren't necessarily part of the reform world, but predominantly reformed theology. And, you know, it's just good. For the most part, it's free. It's ecclesiastical, right? They have a focus on supporting the church, but not replacing the church, which I really appreciate. I think sometimes these big organizations can lose sight of the fact that they're not the church. So check it out. Uh, You can get it at um, ref21.org. You can look up Alliance Confessing Evangelicals. It's available in a variety of ways. Every time I think I have like a decent affirmation, what happens is you come out with a super strong spiritual affirmation. And then I feel like my affirmation just got <laughs> straight Jesus juked. Yeah. I may have to do some really stupid ones for a while. <laughs> that doesn't make me feel better. Like I'll that. be like, I'm affirming potatoes because they're awesome. Listen, we've, we already talked about snack trap. I could house any bag of fried potatoes any time of day. It's true. I did meet a a chip that I didn't like the other day. I'm not going to say the name of the business because it's a local business and I really appreciate them. I really like their food, but they ran out of fries the other day uh, with my burger. And so they gave me chips, but really all they were, were like they sliced their own potatoes and like deep fried them. And they just, they just were not good. They weren't well, that not, I'm not sure that that counts toward our definition of like, I'm talking like mass marketed chip. Yeah, Cause like true. when you make them at home or you make them in a kitchen somewhere, you can definitely get a variety of quality. Uh, that's fair. That's fair. I'm talking more like flavor and stuff. Like I, like, you know, for instance, around here where I live, dill pickle chips are pretty popular. Mm, yeah. Delicious. Yeah. I like dill pickle chips. Amazing. I know the flavor is entirely fake. I don't care. Delicious. Yeah, it's true. It's like banana runs. The bananas don't actually taste like that, but they still somehow can legally call them banana runs, but they're also the best thing on the planet. <laughs> legally? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, we really need to, to revise our laws. Well, that said, what are you affirming? So obviously it's not anything nearly as spiritual as that because that was an amazing affirmation. You know, big data is like all in vogue these days. So this is an affirmation that's like big data related. Incidentally, I guess it could also be an affirmation for the artist named big data. I could get behind that as as well. But this is about visualization of big data. And one of the really popular ways of doing that these days is through, you know, like these clouds, word clouds or cloud tags, sometimes called both those things. So there is this website, chalk this under the application style of affirmation. It's called a worditout.com. That sounds like I'm quoting from, what do you call it? Full house. Like cut it out. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Word it, it out. out. Yeah. <laughs> so worditout.com. What it allows you to do is you can throw in any text and it will create a word cloud for you. So what I've been doing just for fun is either downloading conversations that I've had with people and throwing them into word art to see what we say a lot, or I will take passages of the scriptures and throw them into this and see what comes out. It's been super amazing. So for instance, I have just in front of me right now, a word cloud from Romans 9, 10, and 11. And of course, like the word cloud shows you the more frequently a word appears, it's either it's a larger size or a different color. And of course, like God is at the center of this word cloud. But then like in the secondary level is Israel, righteousness, the word all Lord means. It's actually a really interesting way, I think, to visualize the scriptures. So, or anything for that matter. So any kind of text that you have, you can simply copy, paste it, drop it into wordedout.com and get a pretty awesome word cloud that's really easy and fun to look at. You know, there's another service that is similar to that, but is more oriented towards actual big data. Like word word clouds are kind of like one form of data distillation. But if you look up, um, it's called Calis, C-A-L-A-I-S tagging. And it's perm ID. Uh, I'll have to put a link or I'll, I'll send out a link on the, the show notes. But basically what it does is it takes a body of text and it analyzes it, not just for frequency of text, but it's actually analyzing it and somehow is pulling out topics 
Um, and then it will give you like, it'll pull out if it finds names of people or quotations or industry terms. And then it pulls out what it calls social tags, which is more like if you were tagging your blog article, the tags you would use. Right. So I didn't have this ready, but I'm going to toss in, uh, pick a number between one and 33. Uh, 27. 27. So uh, Westminster Confession, <laughs> chapter 27 is okay. the, the, the chapter on the sacraments. Yes. So I'm going to toss that into uh, open uh, perm ID here and hit tag it. So it analyzes the uh, document and the uh, it, it found the position minister uh, in section four, which is but a minister of the word lawfully ordained. It found the social tags for Christianity, sacraments, religion, Methodism, rites of passage, baptism, confirmation, grace in Christianity, Anglican sacraments and articles of religion. So obviously like it's, it's limited by what you put into it. So it's finding specific words and Methodists and Anglicans tend to use the word sacrament a little bit more often than, than sometimes Presbyterians or Baptists do, but it it actually does a really good job of identifying um, topics and things that are, are in there. It's pretty cool. So I use it a lot of times. Um, Our transcripts for the episode are too long for this service. Uh, but I use a lot of time if I write a blog article, I put that in there to help identify like what tag should I use in the article. Same idea, very similar kind of concept, but a little bit more in depth. So incidentally, that is a really great affirmation. I like that you basically kind of wound up my affirmation, but added support to it. I'm totally down with that. Here's the other thing I was just thinking about. I had no idea what kind of range we were talking about when you said just pick this random number. So if for whatever reason I had picked the section on baptism, I feel like I would have had to become a Presbyterian in that moment. I mean, you almost did. <laughs> I mean, I you, know, were, I was, you were only one off. <laughs> you were only one off. So, but listen, Which is that's just like pretty, a Baptist. It's probably pretty descriptive of where you are in reality. It's just like just that far off. That could be that just could be that true. close to the reality. Of just like a Baptist, though, to be far enough away from it. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you denying this week? So I'm denying this. This stems actually out of a little bit of a conversation we had right before uh, the podcast. And this has come up before. So, I, you know, I feel like maybe maybe we should get our pastors involved and maybe you and I should have some mediation yes. on this. Yes, but I agree. I'm denying that phenomena that happens when someone who has some sort of regional dialect or accent says a word and everyone says, wait a second, say that word again, say that word again. And the word that sparked this this time was the word T-O-U-R. Yes. So how do you say that word? Tor. Tor, like T-O-O-R. I have a doctor that I work with whose name is Dr. Tor and it's T-O-O-R. Okay. So so that's not how you pronounce the word though. That That, that word is not spelled... T-O-R-E or T-O-O-R. No, I, I agree. I'm totally with you. The word is spelled T-O-U-R. And if you've ever studied Greek, you know that when you have a, a tau, an omicron, and an upsilon, <laughs> it's two or toe, not not tor. So right. like there are all sorts of words like you, Y-O-U. You don't say yo, your, yo. You say you. So it's tour, T-O-U. So I'm denying people pronouncing words wrong is really what it boils down to. Uh, listen, I can get behind that. I I mean, welcome to the Reform Linguistics podcast. It's true. I mean, here's the thing about that is you're not wrong. And maybe we should cut to like the 15 people listening to this. We're like, oh, the Greek thing totally makes sense to me now. <laughs> I feel like there's probably more. Let's be honest. With our audience, there's probably more. That's probably true. That's probably true. I definitely went kind of, I would say, lowball on that number. But listen, I'm. I, here's the funny thing is, I'm actually not disagreeing with the pronunciation. I just love to hear it because I think that if I went downstairs to my wife right now and used that word and said tour, she would be like, what's wrong with you right now? Why are your lips making that movement and saying the word weird? So it's just funny how we come to terms with like saying something in a particular way. Yeah, that's probably true. She definitely would look at you a little bit sideways. So, so what are you denying then? I'm back on this denial of the specific language that we're using to talk about this pandemic time. So I think last week I denied this idea of uncertain times because we know that God is in control of all things and his sovereignty is superintending. 
And so this week, I'm just going to be more nuanced and deny against this idea. I hear a lot of people saying these are unprecedented times. And again, that we've talked about this a little bit, like the church has a really rich history in living through serving in the midst of pandemics yeah. and all kinds of crisis regarding health. So I think maybe that's true in the sense of like, of course, in our lives, it's unprecedented, but in all of history, it's just wonderful to be able to stand on the shoulders of those who come before us and really have actually lived through these types of times. And then to see how they processed what it meant to follow Jesus Christ and to serve him in a profound way in the midst of this kind of difficulty. So I guess I'm denying against the use of unprecedented, at least in like certain ways. Yeah, you're, you're definitely right at that. I mean, I think it's unprecedented in some senses in that, you know, we're a much more global culture than we ever have been. So, you know, I was talking to someone the other day about like, you know, like you have to you have to look at each individual area in terms of deciding when you're going to like re reopen back up the area. But also at the same time, you have to recognize that like your area is not as isolated and, and unique as it used to be. So you'll you'll right. understand this from living here. But we have a number of people who who on the street own homes but don't live here most of the year. It's their vacation homes. Typically in the summer, they just come up in the weekends. And so we may have no peak at all. Like our our infection rates where I live have been very minimal. They've been very stable. We haven't experienced this exponential growth. I think largely because the area has taken it very seriously and has has shut down appropriately. But it's very possible that if we open back up, we start like turning on retail stores again, like Best Buy opens up, Kohl's opens up again, that people who live in neighboring regions or even as far south as Boston who live here for the summer, they may come and do their shopping at Best Buy because their Best Buys are all closed and then drag that back up here. So like we're isolated, but we're not. So it's unprecedented in one sense. But in another sense, it's totally precedented. Right. Um, I've been listening to Five Minutes in Church History, which is uh, Stephen Nichols' show. And he was talking about um, a guy named Grimke. And he shared a quote on there uh, about that Grim Grimke had written who lived during the Spanish influenza epidemic or pandemic in the 1918 area or region, era, whatever. Um, and basically he was saying like, We've taken for granted the fact that we can meet on Sundays. And so right. the worst part about this pandemic is that the, the church doors have been closed as a result of this, which tells us, first of all, we're not the first generation of Christians who've had to make the hard decision to say we're not going to meet for a little while. So all of the people who are saying, like, the church has never done this are, are just wrong, like demonstrably wrong. That's correct. But at the same time, like, it's also the the, the fact that like this has happened before. This is not the first time for a lot of the things. We're blessed that we can continue to do some semblance of gathered worship over virtual conferencing. We can continue to do our business. We can continue to do education in the schools. But overall, yeah, this is not all that new of a situation. I'm actually glad you brought that up because can I tag on like kind of it's this is kind of like an affirmation, but more of just a form of encouragement or challenge. I know that a lot of churches and sometimes I think a lot of like staff, our pastoral staff are worried about the content, the expertise of their electronic feeds as they're trying to bring kind of a Lord's Day corporate worship sense onto the internet. Yeah. And I want to encourage people to not worry too much about that, to continue to be faithful in serving that. Nobody was expecting that all of a sudden your pastor would become like a technological expert on how to like craft an online sermon or to yeah. make it like visually appealing. Those things maybe are helpful, but they're not essential. And so no. if you haven't reached out to your pastor and just given him or a word of encouragement or thanks for what they're doing this time, I would really suggest that you do that. Just to let them yeah. know, because this is bringing all different kinds of stress just to put together that Sunday morning, Lord's Day type of experience. You know, they've been trying to take on a skill set that it's not something they ever figured that they would have to understand. And yeah. so I would encourage you, if you haven't yet reached out, just send a note, send a text, do something to let them know you appreciate that they're adapting to this environment and trying to serve the congregation in that way. Yeah. And you know, the other thing too, this may sound a little bit, um, I don't know, jaded maybe, or I don't know. I actually think that we should not go too far to make our online presentation really, really slick and excellent. 
Oh, I'm, because, I'm with you on that. Because first of all, because this is and should be a temporary measure. Like the second that we start to think that this could be permanent or, or like we start to act that way, we've I think we've lost the plot. But in a certain sense, like you kind of want to reinforce to the people in your church that like this is not ideal. And sometimes uh, sometimes the way that you have to do that is by kind of letting it be bad like not overcoming the difficulty a little bit. Right. So like, yeah, your sermon is not going to be as polished and as, as cleanly delivered when you do it to your computer screen, than uh, you know, in person, um, your music quality is not going to be as good. Your audio quality is not going to be as good and that's okay. And actually in some sense, I think it's good because it reflects the fact that we are in sort of this diminished capacity as a church. I, that's exactly what I was saying. I actually had that conversation with a couple of people this week. This idea that we should do what we can to make it less distracting as possible, but we don't need to invest like a ton of time in making it really polished or really slick because yeah. in doing so, we're kind of acknowledging that this is just something that is for a short period of time. And so I, I think that everybody will have to figure out where is that tension? Like, where can we make sure that we are providing enough so that the congregation is feeling connected and filled and full, but also at the same time emphasizing that this is like suboptimal. Like nobody yeah. really wants to do this forever. And I was thinking about this as well. And maybe this is what you're leading up to this idea that I've heard a lot of people say, well, you know, the great thing about this is that it's exposing people who wouldn't come into church to actually hear or see or participate in some kind of worship. And there's a part of me that identifies with that and can resonate with it and say, okay, I understand that. That's great that there's been exposure, but if it doesn't translate in the end to that person coming into the church, actually attending on the Lord's day in person, then it doesn't really matter because yeah. that is the end goal, like full stop. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think, um, I think that that's right, is there certainly are people who are going to be exposed to the preaching of the word who maybe otherwise wouldn't have. And that's good. That's a good thing. Yes. Um, but that doesn't mean necessarily that, you know, it, it's just like, it's our, like Arminian preaching, right? Yes. Arminian right. preaching, people get saved through Arminian preaching. That doesn't mean that Arminian preaching is a good thing. Like it, it's, it's. Suboptimal. <laughs> I, I just think this is funny now that I'm going to say this. Arminian <laughs> preaching is suboptimal. Like it's not, it's not ideal. It's not the best that God has to offer uh, because there is more faithful preaching available. Um, but it's, it's what is out there a lot of times. And God can use a crooked stick to draw a straight line. Like that's of just course. the reality of it. And this crooked stick of these weird Zoom, Zoom church meetings that we have to do. Um, you know, one thing that I have been thinking about that I think is is something interesting to consider is like how does this reality that we've learned how to do some of this kind of virtual church stuff that we maybe hadn't thought through or hadn't been able to do, like how can we use this now to sort of help the persecuted church? Because there sure. are times where the persecuted church has met virtually, but not not commonly. And now, is there a way that we can help them to get better resources? Can we do virtual seminary a little bit better to help train some of these pastors uh, in parts of the world where they can't meet regularly or can't gather? Right. You know, can we use some of these insights? And I, I'm certain that we can. We just don't, we don't need to, we, we don't want to squander the insights we've gained, even though we recognize that like they're suboptimal. Yeah, exactly. And I think that the insights that we've gained is how maybe this technology can support the church, but not supplant the Lord's day. So exactly. pastors from across the country getting together, more book clubs forming, brothers and sisters reaching out to one another and having good conferences and discussions and dialogue. Let's do all that stuff, but let's yeah. make sure that we don't try to supplant the Lord's day. And I'm not saying that churches are necessarily doing that, but I think there might be a temptation when everything is said and done to continue to like stream at a certain level or to have both an in-person experience and to offer some kind of complementary, let's say online experience and equate the two and say, well, what we're doing is we're serving two distinct groups. And by having the online experience, we can reach people that we wouldn't or nor otherwise normally reach. Yeah. I'm not sure that that really is the investment that we should be making long-term. Yeah. I could see a scenario where like, you know, there, there's always, um, like one of the populations in the church that I think get, is underserved at times is the quote unquote shut-ins, like the people who physically cannot leave their homes. They can't make it to sure. church for whatever reason. And then also like, 
you know, there are a lot of people who are like nurses or paramedics that simply can't because of the, the fact that their job is a, a work of necessity. And, and that means that sometimes they have to do that on the Lord's Day. We could utilize the insights and the technology that we've had to serve those populations. But where I think your concern is, and I think it's a good concern, is the people who don't fit that description, we should not right. be we should not be coddling them to, right. to allow them to stay. Like, you know, you see the memes that are like, oh, I went to church in my pajamas today. It's great. Well, no, it's not. Like, this sucks. Like, it, it really <laughs> right, sucks exactly. that we can't get together. And the fact that you think you that, that like, this is the new normal and that, like, you're going to be able to do this permanently, like, that that's just that's just bad. That's just bad piety. Like, it's just a lack of devotion that, that causes that kind of perspective. But that doesn't mean there aren't people that this learn this way of doing things that we've learned how to kind of like cobble together some sort of virtual worship experience doesn't mean we can't use that to serve some other population that doesn't fit that description. I think what we need for our podcast now that we're like 184 deep is we need some kind of like triggering scale. So like, you know how like you can go in Rotten Tomatoes and see their rating or review on a particular movie by different classes. I feel like we need a scale that says so people can be prepared how much we're about to trigger somebody before they listen to the episode. So, and, and I'm setting this up because you were cracking me up. I feel like there's one way we already triggered people where you said, and I agree with you, that Arminian preaching was suboptimal. And then we both were basically were like, <laughs> like we just, we just laughed as we realized like that was the proper way and a fun way to describe it. So that's trigger number one. Trigger number two is in reference to what you said, I want to compare it like this. I feel like we're talking about Hydrox versus like Oreos. Like nobody wants the Hydrox when you can get the Oreos, right? I mean, I know that you go to like a church function. And again, if you're Lutheran, probably used to go into some kind of potluck and seeing Hydrox, but they're, they're okay. But like, that's trigger number choice, three right there. The Lutherans are like, all the Lutheran listeners, like the one of them we have is like, Hey guys, we can afford real Oreos. But I mean, like given the option, you don't want to have the thing that's like an imitation. But the problem is going to be going forward is how do we separate that? How do we make sure that we can like get people to realize and to have enough volition to recognize that we need to be in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. And yet at the same time, the technology could serve, and I would say probably a subset of the population that really would benefit from that. So it's going to be interesting because I think a lot of churches are going to say, hey, you know what? Now that we've been doing like, for instance, like the Facebook live feed, why don't we just add that to the things we're already doing on Sunday morning? And I yeah. think that would be easy to do. They were, we were forced to enter into that world where we didn't have time or resource before. Now we've already allocated to it and we're experienced with it and we might keep it going forward. I guess my concern is just I don't want to see Christians miss out on the Lord's Day or even have the excuse to say, well, I'm, it's just not working out this particular Lord's Day. So I know that my fallback option is to kind of have this sense of faux connectedness with the online experience. Yeah. Yeah. And what I'm suggesting, uh, and maybe I need to bake this out a little bit more, and maybe I should just shut my mouth before I say something dumb. But oh, what no, I'm suggesting is actually almost more like something like, yes, we can continue to have some sort of virtual feed of the sermon, but the elders of the church should almost like have to certify a person as gotcha. needing that, right? Like certify gotcha. someone as having some sort of health condition that prevents them from coming to church. And the person who just like on a random Sunday, like has the chicken pox and can't come to church, they should miss the service. Like they should feel the acuity of missing that service. But like the people who have jobs that take them away that are legitimate works of, of necessity or mercy, the people who have the disabled, you know, people that can't leave their homes or something like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. That that's yeah. I, I do like that scale of like triggering scale. Although I think it would have to start <laughs> pretty high. Like the, the low end would have to be already triggered. Well, we can make it relative. I mean, obviously it's whatever scale. I mean, I'm not saying like that the lower bound is like zero triggering. Our our lower bound might be like, you're going to get triggered. <laughs> <laughs> it's how, how much are you going to get triggered? Right, exactly. It'd be it's like, a triggering scale. It'd be like mildly annoyed would be one and like unsubscribing from the show would be 10. <laughs> so it'd be somewhere between mildly annoyed and unsubscribing. Yes. It's a bit to me like the salsa rating. Like if you're grabbing a can of salsa, if you don't want any spice or heat then what you're actually looking for is tomato sauce you know so I, we're talking about a different scale let's talk about this for a second i've never understood <laughs> how salsa is described because to me okay. it seems like medium 
should be less spicy than mild. Mild seems like it in my mind it should go medium, mild, hot. But like mild is is that the same as low? Cuz like low, medium, high? I just it just doesn't make any sense to me. It never okay, has. Here's the, here's the thing. Uh, and I've actually given some thoughts to this. My wife and I have discussed this at of course great you length, have. much of course yeah, you much have. to her chagrin. Yeah, she she's probably somewhere right now she's rolling her eyes and she has no idea even why it's because we're having this <laughs> conversation. So my feeling is that salsa in its rating is to like what modern evangelicalism is with respect to the gospel. So <laughs> because salsa is like mass produced for people. Trigger yeah, number trigger. four. <laughs> Can we just change this to the trigger episode? Like yes. we're in too deep at this point. Yeah. What are we even talking about? So let me just say this real quick. My feeling is that because it's mass produced, like so much of the gospel to make it compatible for most people, the ratings are totally messed up and they're way too low kind of to what you're saying, because they're trying to appeal to like some kind of mass sense of taste. So for that reason, I just don't trust them anymore. Cause like medium is like, is that even spicy? Like, is there even anything there? Like to me, medium is so bland that you might as well just go up one level if you want any kind of flavor. But that's what I'm saying, though. Isn't medium more spicy than mild? It should be. But I think that's what it is. Like, I think that's how the rating works. Mild is the lowest. Medium is the next highest. And then hot or whatever, spicy. And, And like that scale doesn't make any sense. It's basically saying, like, here's mild. This is our baseline. And then there's spicy. And that's our top. And then there's something in the middle. Who knows what it is, but we're going to call it medium. I don't know. It's great. Before uh, we go on, before we get this back on track, I want to say I watched this really funny video today where this guilt, you'll resonate with this. I don't know why I think you'll resonate with this, but I think you will. There, there was like this newscast and it was some guy in like Georgia and he was at like the like World Institute of Spicy Foods or something like one of those weird okay. organizations. And so he's in doing this newscast. You know, it's like a typical morning newscast. We have like a bunch of people lined up who aren't going to say anything. And there's the newscaster and like the one dude they're talking to. And there's like this this range of spicy peppers on the table. And the, the guy who works at the Institute hands him a pepper and starts to talk about it. And before he could stop him, the guy took a bite of it. And he said, well, that pipe, that pepper is the spiciest pepper in the entire world. It rates like a million on the Schofield scale or Schofield. Is it Schofield? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe it is. It's the most dispensational pepper there ever was. But either way. So so the guy, he like hands him a glass of milk. and He's like, you're going to need this. And then he starts to talk again and he hands the guy the pepper again because obviously like they wanted him to show the pepper on the camera or something. But as he starts to talk, the guy takes a second bite of the pepper (laughs) and he said he actually says to the guy, that was a stupid thing to do, wasn't it? And the guy goes, yes, it was. And you could just see that like the guy's face started to turn red. Man, so this is maybe my favorite episode we've ever done so far because you were close. You're right on. It's the Scoville scale, but okay. I actually like the Scofield <laughs> scale much better for peppers. On a scale of one to ten, how Scofield is this particular <laughs> theologian? We just invented a new rating. How how much of a dispensationalist is this? This would be like last uh, week when I was talking about Sam Renahan's book. I'd be like, on a scale of one to ten, this is a nine on the Scofield rating. This is so good. I say this a lot, but already this has exceeded my expectations for our conversation today. I feel like the people who looked at this episode on their Apple iTunes podcast thing and saw that we were talking about reform preaching chapter 17, they already (laughs) feel like that newscaster and like, this was a stupid idea, wasn't it? And all their friends are like, yes, yes, it was. There's only two groups. There's either the people that are upset with us right now that we haven't yet gotten to this chapter, or they're the people that are like, I'm totally fine. I, I totally affirm <laughs> all the nonsense that's just been talked about right yes. now. Yes. There's also, as far as I can tell, there's two kinds of uh, segues that we do. There's the segue <laughs> we do inadvertently that's smooth like butter. And yes. then there's the slamming into gear segue that we Hard. do when we realize we don't know how to change Hard. topics. And this is one of those where I'm just going Grind to say those gears. Now we are talking about the actual topic of our episode today. 
<laughs> so let's talk about reform. Can you hear the gears grinding right now? Let's talk I about I can smell reform it. preaching. We're in chapter 17 and we're moving our way through this chronology of talking about reform preachers, all these examples that Dr. Joel Beakey has given us. And we're into the 18th century preachers and he is grouped together in this chapter, Halliburton, Edwards and Davies. We got a little J Ed action. Yes. Finally, the people that were waiting and saying, when are we getting to sinners in the hands of an angry God? Well, the wait is over. We're finally here. So in this chapter, one of the things that really stood out to me that I think it may be helpful to talk about right on the face, because lumping in all three of these gentlemen is Dr. Beakey makes this big deal about how the spirit of the fear of the Lord moved these men to preach. And I found that so peculiar. He, he draws on that. And then in each of their examples kind of touches on how that was a major impact. And he talks about how this spirit of fear gave them great authority and power. And yet at the same time, it humbled them. And their preaching was done in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And I thought that does seem maybe not at odds, but certainly in juxtaposition to modern preaching, this idea of the spirit of the fear of the Lord moving preaching. And I think maybe that's present in some preaching to some degree, but seemed to be the hallmark for these three gentlemen. And I find that fascinating. Yeah. You know, I got to be honest, this book has been phenomenal the whole way. Like I've enjoyed every chapter, but I found myself a little bit underwhelmed with this chapter. And, and I think I think what it was is that I would have loved if Dr. Beaky had dedicated an entire chapter to Jonathan Edwards. Yes. Because I, I have kind of this love-hate relationship with Jonathan Edwards. So bef- before we get into the, the discussion here, I want to say like one thing that is a pet peeve of mine in the Reformed world, and this is across the board, is people who are kind of uncritical about their Reformed heroes. Whether that's Michael Horton or R.C. Sproul or Jonathan Edwards or John Cal- like people who treat their heroes as though there are no, no problems or potential problems with that. And I would have liked if Dr. Beakey had spent an entire chapter talking about Jonathan Edwards because I think there are actually some serious theological issues that need to be grappled with with Jonathan Edwards. For sure. I don't think that this chapter even hints at. So I was a little bit underwhelmed. But overall, I thought this was a decent chapter because it really does kind of dig into these three different figures that in some respects are all very different from each other. You know, in the previous chapters, we've had, uh, I think the other thing that threw me off about this chapter is there was all of the previous chapters either focused on a single figure or they, they focused on several figures that were clumped together in some sort of theme or they, they ministered in the same area or they ministered at the same time or they had the same theological topic. These three guys were all really different. They were all from very different parts of the world. There was kind of a general, um, sort of a general temporal, like a, a, a historical affinity. But for the most part, this chapter sort of felt a little bit uncohesive. So, I, you know, I think it'd be good if we kind of just like talked through each of these figures a little bit to kind of touch base on them. Yeah, I, th- I think the criticism that you have is fair. Like my first thought was, I mean, Beaky acknowledges that, for instance, with Edwards, that his works are legion and that his, the, the stuff that he preached and the stuff that he wrote was epic. And it does feel like this is a very quick summary of these guys. Yeah. I mean, it's he has to be cursory, I guess, to some extent, just to fit it in. And he wants to acknowledge their impact. And so he's focusing and kind of funneling everything down into like a particular sense. And that's where he talks about the spirit of fear and preaching. But if you're like me, and maybe some of you are, like, for instance, Thomas Halliburton, who we should start with, was a name that I was only familiar with by kind of mention and association, but not with respect to like what he actually preached. And again, we're talking about kind of early 18th century. And we're getting into a realm where if you're, for instance, like an American, like this is giving you a little bit more resonance because these names are close to your culture and your home. One of the things that I want to start with, with respect to Thomas Halliburton that I just loved is one of the great things about Beaky's writing is he pulls in so many wonderful anecdotes. And the thing that really stood out for me with Halliburton is he writes that Halliburton was buried next to Samuel Rutherford at his request because he wanted to see Rutherford's joy when they both arose from the dead upon Christ's second advent. I love that. I did like that too. And, And, you know, I think, I think that's one of those sort of strange things about former, like former eras you don't really hear people talking that way in our contemporary era. Like people just don't, they don't say yes. stuff like that. Like right. the, the anecdote or the, the account of um, 
Jay Gresham Mation's, you know, his last telegram, I don't remember who he was sending it to, but, you know, thank, thank God for the act of obedience of Christ, no hope without it. Like that was on his mind as he was dying. And like, you just don't hear accounts like that anymore. So I did, I do find that very winsome about uh, Beaky's writing, how he pulls in stuff like that. He kind of highlights, not just theologically, how things were different. Um, people were much more serious and, and devoted to piety and, and things like that. They were more um, productive than they are now. But I, I think it's funny how he brings in those kinds of things as well. I, I do like uh, what you're saying makes sense to me because one of the things I've often thought about is just like the language and the focus that these guys have. So the fact that like that was something that he requested and like yeah. that was on his mind, but this idea of like looking forward to Christ's second advent with like a seriousness, like the, and, and a reality that like, I want to set myself up because I so firmly believe in it. And it's not to say that we don't believe in it, but it's just this action, this follow through, this mindfulness of that, that, fact happening is so beautiful to me. You know, the other thing that struck me about Thomas Halliburton and the rest of them is something that I think Christians, maybe especially in the reform tradition, get criticized for a lot these days. And that is, I would say like the, the progenesis, like the place in which they begin with all of their preaching is this idea of extreme total depravity. And yes. sometimes I think that gets colored as extreme sense of really like you're just eoring theology like yes that is true but let's consider what christ has done for us but i like that like there's no disassociation between the two there's no cognitive dissonance between the emphasis that really we must start in a place where we are so thoroughly under the thumb of the law and so thoroughly condemned and so beyond ourselves in appreciating what jesus christ has done and who god is that we need to begin there in order for us to appreciate the gospel. And I, I don't know how, if you sense this, but sometimes when I speak in those terms, I can even see on like the face of, of Christians, well-meaning Christians, well-meaning Christians, that they're thinking, you're just being so discouraging right now. Like that's a little bit too discouraging. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think if there is a theme that ties these three figures together, which I'm not, I'm not 100% sure, this felt like a sort of catch-all chapter like Beaky was like well I want to talk about these three guys so I'm just going to do a chapter on them but if there is a theme you're pulling it out it's this idea and this focus on the seriousness and the gravity of sin that you know we've seen in other figures but you know this this um this quote from the top of page 300 uh, it's a little bit lengthy but I'm going to read the whole thing is He's talking about Davies and he had just sort of talked about or talking about Halliburton, excuse me. And he's talking about how Halliburton's method sort of starts with God is the absolute sovereign and then then transitions to talk about God is right and good to establish laws and that these laws are necessarily yes. good. And he, yes. he, he writes here, he says he then explains that sin is any lack of conformity to the laws of God in thought, word, deed or condition of heart. All transgressions of the law arise from contempt from God's authority. Sin always brings with it its defilement of the soul with moral filth, the guilt or obligation to suffer the penalty and the curse of God's law. And this, this is what I think is the theme throughout the whole thing is the seriousness of sin and the fact that sin always brings about these consequences. I think, yes. you know, one of the things that I think is useful in Edwards writing, and we'll, we'll get to Edwards, Edwards, as much as he is a theologian who focuses on the glory and the goodness of God, heaven is a world of love, the beatific vision, like these are all themes in Edwards writings that arguably are more, more prominent than, you know, kind of what he's known for is this sort of hellfire and brimstone, um, you're a spider being held over the flame kind of a preaching. He never loses sight of the odiousness of sin. That right. no matter how small or minor sin seems from our perspective, sin is any sin, any, any transgression of God's law, no matter how slight it may seem to us, is sufficient enough to, to draw God's entire wrath. Right? And that, that's the thing that I think we need to think about when we talk about sin is because of the doctrine of divine simplicity. When God is wrathful towards a, a sinner, it's not like God has degrees of wrath. 
Either right. he is oriented towards you wrathfully, which means his entire infinitely powerful being is oriented towards pouring out his wrath on you as a sinner. Like infinite wrath for the minorest of sins. That's what we're talking about when we talk about yes. violating God's covenant, violating God's law. And that's, I think, one of the things that these three figures all do extremely well is they call to mind and they highlight the fact that sin, as R.C. Sproul puts it, sin is cosmic treason against the sovereign of the universe. Right. And the only good thing, the only holy, righteous thing a sovereign can do when someone commits treason against him is to pour out their wrath entirely on that person. And that's something right. I think we miss in a lot of modern preaching is, you know, sin, sin is sometimes seen, you know, we live in a society that focuses on the therapeutic. And so when we, when we talk about sin, we often sort of focus on the anti-therapeutic elements of sin. The fact that sin makes you, it corrupts you. It makes you sick. It's sort of, it, it's bad for you. It sort of it develops bad habits. It develops bad patterns of living. We don't focus often as these figures do on the fact that sin puts us at enmity with the creator of the universe. That's a serious thing that we don't think about often. Right. You're right on with that. I, I actually, I totally agree with you. I think that that's like part of the essence of this preaching, or at least again, the place where they start, because what that draws my mind to is this idea that in modern Christianity, we have we basically, I mean, we joked about like the Schofield or the Scoville scale, but what we've done is we've taken sin and we basically, at least in our mind, created some kind of relative scale based on what we think the transgression is. So, of course, if it's a transgression that we think is more serious, then somehow we think that that's a more serious sin. It's more offensive to God. But what we need to focus on, as these gentlemen are pointing us to, is the fact that it's not about the infraction but about the one whom it is offending, the greatness of the one whom we're offending then is the one that influences or colors or shades provides perspective on the infraction itself. So for instance, if somebody were to come on my personal property right now and I were to, I don't know, call the police, I'm sure they would say to me, like, what do you want us to do? Like, are they doing anything? Is it a, is it a big deal or not? And if I was just like, well, they're just like walking around or like this sometimes happens. Somebody's like walking their dog, like over on our property. If I would call the police and they'd be like, is it serious? I'd be like, well, they're walking their dog on our pro my property. And they'd be like, yeah, you just let it go. Call us when something serious happens. Yeah. However, if I go into Washington, D.C. and just like jump the fence on Pennsylvania Avenue and try to walk on the lawn of the White House, I'm getting taken down. Yeah. And it's not about the infraction. It's about whom I'm offending. It's about the one whom I'm threatening. And so in that case, all sin is this sense of treason. Yeah. Like that's not, so I guess that's kind of my point going back to the beginning is, is that language too extreme? I don't think it is. And I think it's so difficult for human beings to live even theologically in a balanced position. And so if I'm going to know that I'm going to like shade to one side or the other to have a tilt, I want to tilt toward more of this sense of extreme total depravity of the extreme sense of always offending God. And we must start there. So I love like what Beaky, how Beaky describes like all of these gentlemen, but Halle Burton in particular, he says, men enslaved by sin is not only weak, but unwilling to become willing. I found that to be the perfect description. It's yeah. that the will is so broken. It, I mean, corruption is almost like not even strong enough word. It is so off the mark that we can't even see that we are so far from the truth. So we live in a world of our own creation that is not only blind, but like we think we're able to see we've manufactured something that is not even reality. And only Jesus Christ himself can transform disobedient sinners into willing, wise and righteous servants of God. And yeah. these men preach that like they preach it unashamedly. Nobody was ever, they were never afraid to say, no, this is reality. And we must start here. Yeah. And you know, that, that was actually something that I think Dr. Beaky pulls out uh, in his section on Edwards too, is, you know, there, there are um, a million different things you could emphasize in Jonathan Edwards writings. Like he was this prolific author, prolific preacher. There, there's so much content to look at, but one of, you know, what Dr. Beaky pulls out here is that Jonathan Edwards is emphasizing the glory and greatness of God. And the way that he's doing it is in saying there is no sin that can keep you from God's mercy. Right? right. And yes. that seems so counterintuitive when you think about it that way. And, you know, you go back to like Arminian preaching and how it's suboptimal. Like 
this is the reality of, of the difference between Calvinists and Arminian preaching when it's done right. In Calvinist preaching, the, the message of the gospel is you can't stop God from saving you if he wants to save you. Like mm-hmm. he's coming for you if he wants you and he's going to get you and he's not going to fail. <laughs> right? right. That That's Calvinist preaching. Um, you know, there obviously like there's the free offer of the gospel and all those things that we need to, we need to take into account theologically. We need to account for it preaching wise, homiletically, we need to include it. I get it. The Arminian gospel, and I, I'm trying not to build straw mans here. The Arminian gospel is God really would love it if you came to his party and he's made all the provisions for you if you want to. But at the end of the day, you know, maybe you're not going to do it. Right. Like God right. wants you, but he may not be able to have you because you might not want to go. You might not want to be his. Like that's the difference. And this this is where I think Jonathan Edwards, at least in what what Beaky is pulling out, is really strong is his point yeah. that he gets he gets this this scarlet thread that comes through here is the idea that God can forgive you no matter what your sin is. And he is powerful enough to account for and to over uh, to to cover over your sins by the blood of Christ, no matter how bad they are. And that I think is really beautiful. Yeah. Let me add like two quick quotes from the text that I think affirm that and, and, and just kind of compliment it because I was blown away by that. And again, talk about the way that God works in our lives where we understand truth or we've heard truth for a long time. And yet we can kind of turn it over in our minds by somebody expressing it slightly differently and then be all together impacted as if, as if afresh again. And so he quotes Edward saying, if we truly come to God for mercy, the greatness of our sin will be no impediment to pardon. And I love that. That's exactly what you're saying. Like yeah. there's no impediment here. Like no matter how great the sin the greatness of God's mercy is so much grander. And then Beaky himself says this it was regarding God's mercy. Infinity is just as far above great things as it is above small. Yeah. And that just threw me because it's a sense that, yes, if we're going to say that God is above all things, but he's infinitely great, then the pardon that he applies, which is an infinite pardon, is so much greater that we need to like let that kind of come in and seep into our minds and then come all the way down to our hearts. So we actually live that way. So we're not the kind of Christians that need to come to God and ask for repentance because we have not taken him at his word, that we have not believed that if we, forgive, we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. And then as if that weren't enough, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if yeah. anybody is like me again, there were plenty of times where I thought, well, I need to pray about this again. I really, really want to emphasize to you, Lord, that I'm really am as sorry, as penitent as I can be, because I really want to make sure I can get the kind of cleansing that I know that you offer. God doesn't say any of that stuff. He says, listen, my cleansing, my mercy is infinite if you confess your sins and come before me. And so I love that Edwards focuses on that. And incidentally, I love that that's what Beaky emphasizes because he notes that we're so used to hearing Jonathan Edwards as like the terror preaching dude. Yeah. That he, but he was really obsessed with God's beauty, not just essentially and primarily with his wrath. And so I, I think there's just a wonderful coalescence in both those things where he says, yes, God is wrathful, but if we truly come to God for mercy, the greatness of our sin will be no impediment to his pardon. Yeah. Yeah. And th- this is the quote. I, this is kind of like the money shot quote that I think Beaky's summarizing everything he has to say about Edwards. He says, we have nothing to offer God to make us more worthy. Therefore, we may come when we are most unworthy. And, and, and this is really, I think, Beautiful. this is at the core of Edward's preaching, and at least the part that, that Dr. Beaky is pulling out, is whether you are the worst sinner in the world, like the, the, the worst, most despicable evil sinner in the world, or whether you are a run-of-the-mill sinner who fibs about being late to work once in a while, right? The worst you've ever done is you told your boss that you got stuck in traffic when you didn't, right? Those sins, because God is infinitely good and those sins are not good, those sins, murdering your mother is no further away from righteousness than fibbing to your boss about why you were late to work. Right. That's that's the part that's hard for us to swallow. And this is this is what Edward says is he warns that those kinds of thoughts, this is in a slightly different context, but he says those kinds of thoughts that gradate sin, those are a result of a self-righteous spirit, 
which is at the bottom of all of our objections to repentance. So when I, when I think that I'm not as bad as the next guy, because the worst I've ever done is I told my boss I got caught in traffic when in reality I just overslept versus the guy next to me who's cheating on his wife or just murdered someone, right? That's a self-righteousness that's latent inside of me. And so what he says is, neither of those things make you any more unworthy because you're infinitely unworthy compared to the goodness of God. Right. So you, you are just as bad as the next guy in reference to God's goodness, because there's still an infinite distance between your goodness and God's goodness, regardless of how bad or seemingly not bad your sin is. But the beauty of that, and this is where it becomes the gospel is that God has crossed that infinite gap. So both of those sins can be forgiven by Christ because he has, as the infinite God, man, has come across that gap to make forgiveness possible. And I think that's, that is of all the things that I do have some disagreements with Edwards about, this is not one of them. This is a beautiful right. expression of the right. gospel that I think Edwards kind of uniquely articulated in his day. Yeah, I totally get that. By the way, if you were to take apparently like our world cloud, our world cloud, a word cloud of what we've just been talking about, I'm pretty sure the word infinite now, <laughs> would be like in the center of that cloud. but I like that because it would take an infinite sacrifice. It would take an infinite God. It would take somebody who's both truly God and truly man to cross that chasm. And I think you just said that really, really well. So, yeah. so unfortunately like time eludes us because I spent so much time rambling about salsa, but let's like say a couple <laughs> of things about Samuel Davies to kind of wrap this up. And, and the one thing that I want to kind of throw out there that I thought was really kind of interesting about this particular gentleman and about his ministry was that and something that I think relates to our common context is in ministry, Davies avoided criticizing the Anglicans. And, and by way of just like quick kind of context uh, of which he was a deserter and he was required to seek approval for like from the government for a meeting because he was moving away from the Anglican tradition. But choosing what he did was he chose instead to focus upon the glory of God, the gospel of grace, the life of spirit work, godliness and the great realities of heaven and hell rather than kind of going after the England church, like explicitly. And so I, I think basically what he said was, I'm going to stay in my lane. I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to serve well. And in the reading of this chapter, I was so impacted by what a testimony that is that there's times, and we've certainly done it on this podcast. We've done our fair share of this where it's appropriate to call out certain groups, certain people. And at the same time, sometimes it is appropriate to serve to keep your mouth shut and to focus on the ministry that God has given you, which is the preaching of the gospel and the exhibiting of that kind of grace and mercy in the work of your life and in your relationship with others. Yeah. And so I'm really impressed by the example that he gave because it seems that as the way at least Dr. Beagie describes, that ministry was so profound that there are many people that actually left the Anglian church because of the gospel that Davies was preaching. And it wasn't because he was coming in this polemic way under by bringing an attack against the Anglicans, but merely because he was faithful to the word of God. And yeah. I love that example. Yeah. You know, not to get too like coronavirus obsessed right now, because that's a, I, I don't know what we call it, but that's a real thing where you like everything gets connected back to coronavirus. But that actually is a real good practical application, I think, for our current day is there are some churches and pastors out there who I think are errantly assuming that to fail to meet on the Lord's day in this current situation is sin. And so I respect right. their convictions. I respect the motivation behind it. But what I think is going to happen and I think is happening is some of these, some of these churches, because they're, they're re refusing to obey what I believe is a lawful order from the magistrates, they're going to face consequences that will hinder their ability to preach the gospel in the future. And that's similar to what was going on with Davies. You know, there were, there are probably some people who, in our modern context would say, oh, he's just watering down the gospel. He's refusing to take a stand for truth. You know, he's, he's refusing to call out the liberals and the Anglican communion of his day. But in reality, his ministry was much more potent and much more effective because he chose his battles wisely. Right. And for exactly. Davies, this, this is the thing with Davies. His battle was the salvation of those he was preaching to. And so he chose to expend his energy preaching the gospel 
and, and converting sinners. And the fruit of that was actually probably the same goal as what a lot of these, I don't want to call them discernment bloggers because most of them are, but a lot of these, these kind of warriors who are trying to fight against certain things, they're spending all, and you know, there are times that I fall into this, like you and I have fallen into this and I don't think it's necessarily always bad. Like there's a time to kind of buckle on your sword and go to battle. Like that's fine. But Davies was so focused on preaching the gospel that the fruit of his ministry actually accomplished the same end. And that's what shows me this is how God intended it to happen. Right. God intended the gospel to go forth and the gospel did what the gospel does. It brings about true revival and true religion. And that is automatically going to tear down false institutions and false churches. Man, I thought you were about to lay down another bumper sticker for us. Like gospel is as gospel does. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, we should we should make a we should make I don't know we should start a company, fall like <laughs> bumper sticker theology. That'd be a good like meme page. That would be a good meme page. But I totally copyright agree with you. 2020. This was I like I said I think that Beaky had to go through some kind of like self editing here because with each of these gentlemen he could have spent almost a whole chapter. And in some ways I wish that he did, but I appreciate that he brought them together and kind of showed their commonalities with respect to emphasizing the extreme degree by which man is depraved and needs the gospel. And of course is unwilling to recognize that there is that need, but then also all these little nuances among each of them, where he speaks about really the prevalence of a love mercy of God, the infinite nature of God's spanning that chasm. And then like we just said with Davies, this way in which he is a man of great resolve and great renown. And yet at the same time is able to discern where he should focus his resources. And to your point, what a wonderful thing. Maybe maybe we should consider what would it look like if maybe we consider refocusing our energy sometimes away from strict criticism toward a way of preaching strict gospel and see if that might have the desired effect that we are after in the end, because it may be that we need a purification of motives and that Davies was better at able and his ability to kind of discern that by way of the Holy spirit. But either way, this is, this is fascinating. I'm looking forward to the next chapters and I'm glad that you and I are doing this a little bit more regularly. I hope that people are tracking with us. And again, the encouragement is always the same, which is pick up the book. Even if you have not been tracking so far, you can join in and go back and read the other chapters in many ways that compartmentalize but you're absolutely going to be blessed. And for anybody who would say like, well, listen, this is the title is Reformed Preaching. I'm not a pastor. That doesn't mean it precludes you. In fact, I would say this is really great training to be a better congregate and to be a better participation yeah. in worship, especially sitting under good preaching. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jesse, before we end, I do want to say one thing. <laughs> okay. Everyone who listens to our show should should pause this episode and they okay. should go to confessionalware.com and they should buy a t-shirt. Now, yes. whether it is whether it's a Reformed Brotherhood t-shirt or or some other t-shirt, there's lots of great stuff. There's uh, Reformed Pilgrims content on there. There's According to Christ t-shirts and stuff, just in case you uh, loved that show when it was on the air and you just want a t-shirt to commemorate it. Um, there's other stuff on the, the site as well. But one of the things that I, you know, we talked about a little bit last week is I've been trying to spend my money at local businesses a little bit more than I've been spending it at like national chains. That's sure. taken the form of us of like ordering pizza locally and getting food at like local diners. But one of the things we don't think about is the fact that there are all sorts of sort of online digital businesses like confessionalware.com that, um, you know, maybe they aren't taking as much of a hit as some of the local businesses that have to close, but everybody is tightening their belts a little bit, which means not, not everybody is ordering things online as much as they used to. So, um, it would be great if everybody could go and support Raf, who has been a awesome friend of the show. He's done yes. so much work for us, helping us getting our material going. He uh, expects very little from us in reference to overhead costs. Um, he does as much as he can to keep his costs low and to pass on as much um, of the proceeds to the, the partner shows as he can. He's, he's really 
uh, sacrificially enabled us to have content uh, and material and merchandise. So everybody should go to his website, order a t-shirt or two or three, order a mug, do whatever you got to do, buy something from Raf, uh, help him out during this tough time. You know, As far as I know, his business is doing great. He hasn't asked us to do this. He's not going out of business or anything like that. But if we're going to spend our money during this time and we're going to sort of spend sacrificially, I know that seems a little bit weird to say, we should do it in ways that support our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is one brother who has supported us. So I just want to throw my voice out there and ask our listeners to do something to support him a little bit more than you might have otherwise. Thank you for suggesting that because you and I have talked. I mean, here's what, here's what everybody needs to know about Raph, but they probably don't, is one is a super sweet name because yes. <laughs> Raphael is an amazing name. Yeah. But the second is that he is immensely generous. He actually yes. reached out to us originally to say... Or are you looking for somebody that might be willing to help provide some materials for your listeners? And we said, yeah, sure. And ever since then, he has been nothing but a servant to us, even in the way that he shares the revenue from the goods that he sells with the podcast. So when you go out and you buy a t-shirt or a mug or a sweatshirt, there's a sweet hoodie, which we both have, which is really comfortable. It's true. I guess we're getting into the summer months. So like, you know, that eventually... Once all this ends, you're going to be out and about and you're going to want to put our faces on your chest. (laughs) (laughs) So you're going to want a t-shirt. I couldn't even get through that with a straight face. So go to confessional wear and support a brother because this ministry, like there's no strings attached. Everything here is transparent. What you see is what you get. This is somebody who is trying to encourage the church, encourage the brotherhood and the sisterhood. And they're doing that by making t-shirts. And we're so appreciative of that. So go to confessional wear and if you have the resources, we would love for you to spend a little money there to support RAF. Yes. And buy something. Don't just go look, buy something. And don't just buy. I mean, we love it when you buy Reformed Brotherhood <laughs> stuff. But if, if you are one of those persons who already has the full array of Reformed Brotherhood gear, yes. kudos to you. But go buy something else anyways. Reformed Pilgrims has lots of cool stuff. Uh, there's just lots of really great stuff that he puts together. So go buy something from RAF. Help him out. Uh, help him support his family and then help him support us a little bit as well. It's super fun. Actually, I feel like I'm, I'm on the website again right now and I haven't know why well, I've been on there in maybe like a couple weeks and there's new stuff. Yeah. So I actually think I'm going to place an order because I love Raph and I mean, man, there's just no good reason not to have some of these super sweet t-shirts yeah. and wear them all over the place. It's true. Well, Jesse, this has been the weirdest up and down, back and forth episode that I think we've ever done. This has been more random than some of our random episodes. That's true. So I think we probably should wrap it up. So yes. until next time, Jesse, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.